0: Thanks, guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, if you're new. Uh, and if you're new, as Jess said before, welcome to you, especially to our church. Um, we are in a series right now in the Gospel of John, <clears throat> as Peter was mentioning. And so if you have a Bible or a phone app and want to turn to John chapter 12 to kind of follow along in context, feel free to do that. But uh, today's passage will be on screen here in its entirety in just a minute. Um, but to remind you guys where we're at, <clears throat> we're in, in John chapter 12 and John chapter 11 is uh, a kind of famous story, at least maybe for some of you, of when Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead after he had a terminal illness and died. And so <clears throat> the end of chapter 11, like we, like we read and preached through last week, into chapter 12 serves as kind of some fallout, uh, in a way, uh, from what happened there and um, stories about people wanting to kill Jesus for this and fears over the Romans misinterpreting this as some kind of uprising. Um, Caiaphas' prophecy from last week. Uh, which was a I-don't-know-what-I'm-quite-saying prophecy, but I'm prophesying the gospel kind of thing too. Some of you might know about that, but that was last week. Into today, which is Jesus is back in Bethany, which is a small village outside of Jerusalem, and he's going to have dinner with Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, and his disciples. And and something happens there. I think Peter was uh, giving a nod to it, uh, but between uh, Mary and Jesus, where Mary uh, anoints Jesus and uh, basically uh, prepares him for burial. As uh, is kind of in the commentary. Matthew's account actually makes it a bit more clear. <clears throat> but, um, but that's kind of what's happening here as well, uh, per Jesus' words. And so, um, but one thing I want to mention too here is that I have been mentioning throughout the series is that uh, tensions are starting to mount, or maybe continuing to mount, within the ranks of the disciples. Uh, so not just from outside, from people that want to kill Jesus, uh, but from within. As well, on really what to do with Jesus and the things that he's saying and claiming. Um, in the Gospels, if you don't know this uh, yet, uh, Jesus' claims cut like a knife sometimes. They're not always palatable and swallowable. Um, and today's passage, I think, is um, a type of Exhibit A uh, for this idea. So, um, so again, anointing Jesus for burial today from John 12, 1 to 11. Let me just read it in full to begin, then we'll come back and, and say a few things. So, verse one, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Poor Lazarus, right? Always dying and always, uh, always um, trying to be killed. But, um. <clears throat> okay, so uh, a little aside here before we dive in. Uh, that if you weren't here last week, the Passover mentioned in, in verse 1 is the Passover Jesus will die on. So his death is imminent. This is probably the Saturday before the Friday of his death. So uh, we're, we're close. The, le- the second half of John then, even though we'll be preaching this book through next Easter, uh, is, uh, it takes up a short amount of time. Uh, the, the book is heavily weighted towards uh, Jesus' death and his sufferings, his trial, uh, and then his triumphant resurrection a few days later, uh, as all the gospel accounts are, and there's a reason for that because it's more important than the things that come before. All right, so this is the Passover Jesus will die on, and um, and so John is going is kind of um, you know spinning or turning towards that direction. Now uh, we'll have the the triumphal entry here pretty soon, I think that's in a, in a couple of weeks. But um, this story, some of you might know as well, is included uh, where Mary anoints Jesus in some fashion with uh, her hair and her tears and expensive perfume and ointment. It's included in all four gospel accounts, uh, some version of it anyway. And um, there are parts that some of the individual gospel writers choose to emphasize more than others, which can make these stories sound a bit different, especially Luke's version. Um, But they don't contradict in any way either. In fact, it's their differences that testify to their factualness and their historicity, and their truthfulness. Because if it was all made up, they would all sound identical. Uh, but, but they don't. Alright, so what I want to do then uh, this morning is kind of address the center of this passage, which is pretty easy to see, even if it was your first time hearing this. There's this um, bit of tension or uh, kind of a back and forth between Judas and Jesus over Mary's actions. And so I'm kind of just calling this addressing the elephant in the room, essentially, uh, from two angles. First, Judas's greed. And then Jesus' response, which is kind of a surprising comeback uh, in a sense. And and I'll warn you, as I I hinted at before, sometimes the good news comes with a dash of offense um, like salt on a soup because grace has so much more to do with Jesus than you and me. Uh, And that's hard for prideful people, of which we all share uh, in in that particular sin, Christian or not. Um, And I know I say all this a lot, but it's quite pronounced in today's passage as we look at how Judas and Jesus here, uh, have this back and forth. All right. So let's start with Judas's greed. And um, if you're new to our church, the, the way we like to read the Bible here, um, it's not a novel or anything. But the way we like to read it is to, to look at the whats, but also the the whys and the hows. So kind of what's going on, but where's the theology in this? And so we'll kind of follow that pattern here uh, too. Um, but John adds helpful commentary here in verse six, which is kind of interesting. He says, basically, and I'll paraphrase, but. Judas didn't actually care for the poor when he said to Jesus um, and kind of to Mary too, why didn't we sell this? And we'd have have all this. It was very expensive. It was probably imported from northern India. We don't know how Mary got it, but the amount of it, and and John writes expensive here, but the amount of it and and, and what it was, pure it's very expensive. So Judas is like, well, we could have used this for all this good. We could have changed the world or blessed so many people. Um, And so, um, but verse 6 is helpful in that we kind of see into Judas's intentions, uh, right? Uh, Judas didn't actually care for the poor. He was just greedy. He wanted, he was in charge of the money bag. So it's like, well, there's more money in there, I can just help myself when I, when I, to it when I want. So it's interesting as readers here, we get this kind of omnipresent perspective, knowing the thoughts of a character, even though it contradicts his words, which we don't always get this in biblical narrative, but we get it here uh, through, through John. And we can be sure that Jesus knew what was going on here as well, right? Both because he was the wisest man who ever lived, but also because he was God, knowing the thoughts of the mind and of the heart. And so all that together, um, and, and this is how the sin of greed probably then, and not just probably, but did present in Judas. He loved money. He was a thief. He loved himself more than Jesus. Jesus. He loved himself more than others, including the poor. And he had a faux spirituality to him, a false modesty, which is itself a grievous sin. It's a type of showmanship and deceitfulness and pride that you could argue reeked even more than the desire for money itself. And so, I know I barely need to say this, but Judas was a terrible person. Terrible person. There's a reason why it's painted this way because he was this historically, but also this is the guy who's going to... Actually, says in commentary in this passage, he's going to be the one to betray Jesus as well, so he is that type of enemy of of the Son of God. We have that layer to it. With all that said, here's the follow-up question that I think needs to be asked, Uh, and that is, why didn't Jesus expose Judas's sin? You ever wonder that? If Jesus knew this, and he did... Why didn't he shine a spotlight on it? Or at least his false motives. Why are we left with John's commentary here on it and not Jesus' words of judgment? It's kind of like the apostle is more uh, vocal about it. John, the apostle, is more vocal about it than Jesus is. Jesus is quiet about it. He even kind of plays along, right, by saying, well, he talks about Mary's actions as though... um, you know, Judas actually did have intentions use it for the poor. And we'll come back to that here in a sec because that's very important as well. But It kind of plays along a little bit. So why is this? We may not know all the reasons, but I think we do know one. And that is Jesus' actions here are a whisper of a time coming in the not too distant future when sin would be covered up. This is the gospel. Not overlooked as though it was no big deal, but displaced onto Jesus when he's on the cross, who had died to purchase our forgiveness, and in that forgiving, covering. Uh, the Bible talks elsewhere about covering our shame, and so Jesus is referred to as like clothing uh, elsewhere in the letters where, it, um, where Paul says, put on Jesus, like he's a, a covering robe or a, or a cloak or a jacket, or in this case, maybe a blanket. Put on Jesus like he is an, an, an alien uh, remedy to you. He's outside of you, but he's the one that will protect from the elements of sin and death. He's the one that will cover up and make us warm in the love of God. Uh, not us, but but him. I don't know if you guys have seen the movie. Uh, I just thought of this this week because Leith and I sort of recently saw this, so that's probably been, it's probably been four years. You know how COVID is now. It's like, was that yesterday or four years ago? But um, this movie, um, Central Intelligence with uh, The Rock, and Kevin Hart. Anybody see this? It's not that good, Um, but it's, but there's this, the first scene is funny where um, he, the Rock is in high school, and he he is bullied and thrown into a, thrown thrown out onto the gym floor naked by these bullies um, in a high school, like, um, rally or something, and so everyone, so in the, but in the midst of people pointing and And laughing, this uh, so Kevin Hart's character just takes his jacket off and covers him up, so he has something to cover up with as he runs in embarrassment out of out of the gym. And just that that picture um, is well, it's a powerful picture, right? We maybe see this elsewhere too. Um, Certainly, we have, um, but that's that's the gospel. Is is there's this type of like we have shame, we're exposed to the elements, Um, we're embarrassed, we're guilty. Uh, Actually, the Bible teaches this too in Genesis 3. right? Adam and Eve sinned. They realized they were naked. And they immediately tried to cover up. um, And they didn't do a very good job. And and they're sowing a fig leaf. So God says, I'll give you better clothing. And he covers them with animal skins. Um, The same idea. But the Bible says uh, elsewhere too that love covers a multitude of sins. And and this is where I want to bring this section to kind of a head here. Um, This doesn't mean love makes up for sins. So just in case you're you're tempted to read it that way, it's not saying love, if you're a sinner, if you love people well, it will make up for it. In that way, it will cover it. But instead, no, love actually covers up the sins. They're they're still there, in a sense, but it covers them up. It hides them. It um, absolves on on that level. Um, And I think this is an important distinction because love, this is true on a human level as well, love does not demand perfection. Right? Love does not demand perfection in the one who's loved. Sometimes Christians think this way about God, like God demands that we be perfect, and he doesn't because it's not love. I mean, do, you, do those of you who are in like a healthy marriage right now, or if you have a friendship um, with, with love in it, do you demand perfection? I mean, you don't, right, because you actually love the person, but your love uh, absolves, it covers up, it loves in spite of the sin and the foibles, Right? So how much more is God that way? Love covers up the sin. It doesn't demand the perfection, and then it loves. It's not conditional, because love at its core is unconditional. And so love covers like a blanket. And that's, I think, what we're starting to see here, a glimmer of this. Not the first time in the gospel, by any stretch, but we're seeing another instance of Jesus. The type of Savior he is, is not a spotlight on your sin Type savior, But one who would come to somehow, we don't, we don't know yet. If you don't know the end of the gospel, we don't know how that's going to happen yet. But somehow, he's going to cover. Somehow, he's not going to take off the blanket and expose, um, like if you know the story of Noah and his sons when he was drunk in Genesis 9. Not like Ham taking off the cover and posting a picture of his naked dad on Facebook or something, or on Instagram. But, um, but instead, more like Japheth. And Shem, who covered up their naked father. Um, And Jesus came from that line genealogically, not from the line of exposing. Not from the line of shame, but from the line of covering up. All right? Let's move on to this next kind of elephant, uh, basically in the room, which this might be the bigger one, is poor people's needs. Uh, Let me read again from verse 7 and 8. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me." Alright, so, uh, whether or not you've read this before, um, this is a surprising response, isn't it? Like, if you were to kind of cover up the, that part and read the first part, and you were to guess what, what would come next, you might not guess that this is what he's saying. It's a surprising response. Uh, maybe it challenges your notion of who Jesus is and what he came to do. It has the power to do that, I think, in a good way. There might even be a, a, an unmentionable or embarrass, an embarrassing element uh, to this passage for some, but... Let me start by saying this, not for Mary, right? See, it depends like your perspective. If your perspective is kind of like, like from Judas's perspective, this is offensive. But for Mary, this is not embarrassing at all or unmentionable. For Mary, this is good news. For Mary, the one who's giving everything here and breaking the, the, the flask or pouring out the ointments and... Um, in highlighting Jesus, this is confirming. This is a show of, of love and protection from Jesus toward her. This is a backing of her actions. Leave her alone, Jesus says. Um, I, I love that statement. I, I don't know um, if you guys knew this or not, but this is, um, this is the same thing that Jesus says uh, to the devil, to the devil's accusations about you, uh, that, that the God of the universe um, basically says, when you are accused, and Judas is actually kind of a double figure here, we know that in the Bible, but um, that, that God says, leave her alone. Leave him alone. She's mine. He, when he centralizes me, he's doing the right thing. Because that's what God says through the gospel to us, is uh, take your claws off of him or her. Uh, she's my daughter. and And so we have that kind of like, This is not just Jesus to Mary. This is Jesus to you all. If you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, this is the type of advocacy. This is the type of statement he has towards you is he says, hands off, you know, to the devil and to the accusations that come. This is basically what Judas is doing, right? He's accusing. Like she's doing something that's not good. Uh, She's forgetting the poor. So it's an accusation, right? Her spirituality... It's too simple. It's too Jesus-centered. Uh, she, she's, a, she's misusing the money. We could be using this for all these good things. We could sell all our stuff and give, give it all away. And Jesus is saying, leave her alone. What are you doing? Actually, Jesus, Judas is the misguided one, right? Not just because he's, he is not intending this, but even if he were to intend it, Jesus is rightly saying she is doing the right thing. All right, but we still have to go back and delve into what Jesus is saying uh, First, um, what is he not saying? Jesus is not saying here that we should draw a thick black line between Christian spirituality and the practice of giving to the poor, as if they never, ever intersect. He does not say that here, right? In fact, he implies the opposite when he says you'll you'll always have the poor. Um, And we could mention passages like Galatians 2.10 where it says the Christians were eager to give to the poor, or 2 Corinthians 8, where it ties giving to poor Christians with how Christ gave to spiritually poor sinners like all of us. But also I would say let's not bury the lead here either. Uh, Jesus said, Jesus is saying here, my impending death is more important than you giving to the poor. My impending death has preeminence. There's a primacy to it. What I'm about to do on the cross is more important than selling this perfume and giving it to physically poor people. We can't miss that either on the same level. Right here, Mary is um, endorsed her actions and Judas is the one rebuked. There is a clear and unavoidable hierarchy here, as offensive as that might seem. Um, But remember, Jesus is not just a moral teacher. This is one of those passages you know, if we had a list of these in John, think how long it would be by now. Those of you who have read John or have been here for the series, it's long. It'd be off the stage here, spilling over into the first pew. It's, this is one of the past, another verse where we know this is not just a guy. This is the son of God. God speaks this way, but if humans were to, it um, wouldn't come, come across with the same oomph. It would even, you could even argue it'd be sin. But Jesus is God in the flesh, um, and another way I think Jesus is distancing himself from Moses here as well, like in John 1:17, where he says, Moses brought the law but I bring, the gospel, I bring grace because the Old Testament laws commanded people to give to the poor, lots of them, in many different ways. The prophet spoke of this as well as one of the chief sins of Israel during that portion of history but Jesus is saying, I'm here to bring something different, I'm here to bring me, uh, less of a demand. Uh, and more, I'm orienting all these things around me and what I'm going to do for you, which I'll come to here in a second. But, or maybe think about it this way. If Jesus' mission was to help the physically poor, if that was his main MO, then this moment in John 12 would have been the perfect opportunity for him to say so. Right? I mean, talk about a teachable moment, if that's what he's here primarily to do. He would say, Mary, thank you, but you know what? Judas is actually right. The ointment must be saved and given to others. But he doesn't say that. He, in essence, says the opposite. Uh, I preached this passage a couple of years ago more from a philosophy of ministry angle, like what Christians can learn about ministry, uh, about church planting, about our lives on a a daily basis and what place giving to the poor has, all that stuff. I'm not going to do that today for time's sake, but I will say... That this passage is a helpful passage ministerially or philosophically for two reasons. One, churches must value <clears throat> churches must value Jesus over other good things. All right, please hear that. Especially those of you who are in leadership, maybe want to plant a church someday. I'm saying this on behalf of all of our leaders at the church who believe this. It's okay if you don't believe this. All right, you're here. You're here to learn, um, but. On behalf of all of our leaders, this is what we believe. Jesus is more important than everything else good in the world. We're not saying that good is bad. We're just saying it's secondary. So we don't blend other good things with the Christ in the spirit of what's happening here. We, we prefer to copy Mary. That, and Jesus endorses her, uh, her right? That this, is a, this is a philosophy of ministry passage in, in a lot of ways. Christians must refrain Or sorry, churches must value Jesus over other good things. All right, I could talk for an hour probably on that, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, Second, Christians must refrain from judging other Christians for their simple faith and for not engaging in, say, good social causes like they do. So, and, and as we can see here, that type of judgmental piousness does not impress Jesus at all. Now, this is kind of a picture of, um, let's just say, kind of a type of Christian, a type of Jesus follower, judging another Christian for her simple, um, Jesus-centered, Jesus-is-all-I-need uh, kind of faith, and sort of saying, but you're not doing enough. You're not doing enough. You're not giving enough. You're not poor. You're not, there's more we can do to change the world. Uh, And I I will say this, Christians, you you and I, we must refrain from doing that. We must. The New Testament pages, the the pages of the New Testament, are full of these types of issues. The letters are full of these issues. You might be aware of this. Where the true gospel says Jesus alone, and Christians come in and say, yeah, but asterisks. Yeah, but not really. There's more to do. Um, and the letters are written kind of against that, type, that way of thinking. So true Christianity, though, true Christianity goes all in. All the perfume goes into the center of the table on Jesus' death and resurrection. That's true Christianity. Everything goes in, like Mary here. Everything goes in on the person and work of, of Jesus Christ. Then, secondarily, other things might follow that, but they're... They're like the coattails. They're like in the wake of the boat. They come after, not as things that are demands, but things that flow behind uh, or that or that pour out from. All right, then this last question is, um, what is really happening here, though? And I, um, I didn't want this to be kind of a, you know, a, a guess thing, so I, I said to begin that this is a preparation for burial. I titled the sermon this even because want well, clarity on this. Jesus is re- this is really what's going on. Jesus is being prepared for burial. Matthew 20, Matthew's account makes it more clear. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. All right, and here's what I like about John's account. So I mentioned before that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have an account of this. John is unique, though, in that John's account comes right after what story? Right after Lazarus being raised from the dead, Right? And the other three gospel accounts don't have that story. So theirs are inserted in different different places. Um, So John's account then has this type of context to it. And that's significant because it makes it all the more clear that Lazarus and Jesus are swapping places. Lazarus and Jesus are changing places. I think last week I used the phrase, ships passing in the night, to get at this idea And we see it all the clearer here in chapter 12. Jesus didn't just raise Lazarus. He raised him in order to walk right by him into his own tomb. He said, take the burial clothes off Lazarus after Lazarus was raised. But later, he's the one who would be bound with burial clothes himself. And so here we are in chapter 12 with burial preparation six days before his crucifixion already happening before his impending arrest and execution take place. And uh, so the, the idea here is substitution. The idea is we are not raised by the power of God alone, but by the substitution of God. It's not just God calling into our tomb, saying, come to life. The way he ultimately makes that possible is by taking our place, is by dying for us in our place. God didn't become like you for no reason. He became like you to die for you in your place, to look exactly like you so that that might be possible. See, if God could save you just by calling into your tombs, the incarnation, which is when God took on human flesh and became like us, when he became a baby in the manger, none of that's necessary if he could just call in and do it. But see, sin had to be atoned for. Death had to be worn. Um, God had to be just. To, in order to justify us and make us right before him, he had to take on our sins. You know? and, and I like that Lazarus here, remember the context here? They're having dinner when all this is happening. It's quite a dinner. But I like that Lazarus is sitting at the table when all this is going on. It's kind of like a student learning this lesson. You know, I like to think that maybe Lazarus is thinking, well, I'm alive again and I'm still kind of dizzy from all this. But now the one who raised me is going to die? That doesn't seem fair. And no, it doesn't, Lazarus. And that's the point. Jesus unfairly dies, but he does so in love for you and me. And that's the gospel, that's the good news. That's, what God, that's how much God loves you and what he thinks of you. There's another layer to this, though, and before I get to it, um, it's important to remember that when we do biblical interpretation, when you guys just read your Bible, whether it's very formal or informal, it's important to remember that even though Jesus might be present in a story, other elements of the same story can resemble him and typify him simultaneously. Uh, we just talked about one, Lazarus. Spencer did a great job a couple weeks ago showing us this, that Jesus is there in the story, but Lazarus is typifying Jesus' resurrection as well. There's a lot of similarities there, literary devices that are used by John to point ahead. This is, this, we, we said this story's not just about Lazarus, this is, it's, it's more, it's about Jesus. So in that story, there's almost two Jesuses in the story, helping to accentuate the gospel story all the more. But you can say it's about all kinds of other things as well. It could be almost any, any story in the gospels. The good Samaritan, the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus, the donkey that he rides into the city, the lambs being prepared for sacrifice, the bread that he gave people and broke to feed the 5,000. All of those are images of Christ themselves. All those resemble Jesus. Even though Jesus is there in the story there's another shadow of Christ as well in the story that's playing a supporting role you could say. Um, But it's there. And so in today's passage Mary fills that role as well. Even though in a way she's playing a role opposite to Jesus in that she's cleaning his feet, she also images Jesus and how she uses a part of her body to cleanse and anoint. Like Jesus would later use his body to save us from our sins. Her hair is getting dirty while Jesus' feet are getting clean. Just like later in the story, Jesus would wear our filth, like our sins on the cross, dying in our place, in order to cleanse us from them. And if you know John 13 is coming, if you, if you know the Gospel of John, you know what, what's the big part of John 13? John 13. Jesus is going to wash his disciples' feet, right? So, we, so even here we have this, this woman's doing this, but Jesus is going to do it after this in a physical way, but then after that in a spiritual way. All these things connect. But substitution kind of wins the day here as well thematically. Mary's becoming dirty and Jesus is becoming clean. Well, it's not really about Mary. This isn't really about this moment. It's this little dinner in Bethany. This, is, this has cosmic implications for all of us, that Jesus would ultimately be the one who would wash your guy's feet, wash your soul with his hair, with his blood, with his body, with his sweat, by being torn to shreds on that cross. That's how cleansing happens. That's how purification, the Bible says, happens. And maybe this is why the fragrance filled the house, John takes care to mention, and why it was such a holy moment, which is part of the point of that. Not just because Mary was doing something beautiful, though she was, and she's worthy of emulation in that regard, but even more because she was resembling the one who would come after her to truly wash our feet through the self-dirtying of his body at Calvary. And that actually changes how we view the passage. or It has the power to. Um, it, it moves us less from a Judas perspective and more to a Mary perspective. It moves us from maybe the question of why is Jesus not caring for the poor here to wait a minute, I've been looking at this thing upside down. Jesus is caring for the poor. He's just doing it by making a beeline to the cross where he provides the riches of his grace to the spiritually poor Uh, you know, people like you and people like me. This is really what the Bible is teaching, is that there are different kinds of dirtiness. There are different kinds of poverty. We have to have categories for this, or you just won't be able to understand the story. There is physical poverty, and God cares about it, but there is a greater kind of poverty. And if it's greater, then he's going to care about that more if he's a God of love and a God of rescue. This is not even like, I would say this is theology, but it's basic logic. Right? We do this all the time. If you have a scratch on your arm and you have cancer, which one should you probably take care of first? It's, it's, it's obvious. And so Jesus is doing this. This is the, the impulse, the forward-moving nature of the story is that there's a greater poverty. We don't have anything. We're fully naked spiritually and figuratively before God. We're exposed. He sees everything inside us, Inside our brains and our hearts and our bodies were exposed. But Jesus came to be the blanket, the covering, the balm, the the ointment, the medicine, the, the spiritual wealth, the Bible says. Because Ephesians 2 says we are rich in his grace. We have everything. So if you have a lot of money... You're rich, not with your money, but in his grace. If you have no money, you actually are rich in his grace. There's no distinction. There's no partiality with Christ. doesn't matter what you have. either have Jesus or we have nothing. And so that's what I want to leave you guys with uh, today is just this. I think what John 12, John 12 says a lot, but I think at the end, God says to you through this and to me, he loves you all to the uttermost. And Jesus makes no demands on you. But the ultimate thing you should take away from this passage is not, I need to sell all my stuff and just give it to global missions. That is not what this passage is saying. It's saying, Jesus will give it all away. It's saying, Jesus will be the one to clean you. It's saying, Jesus will be the one. It's like that last song I was getting at, and Peter kind of gave it a thing about it before the song. It's like, we want to give everything, but our hands are dirty. Our lips are unclean. Um, What this is about is God not making demands on us, but graciously giving to those who have nothing at the greatest of costs to himself. If you believe, if you stay in the fold of Christ, if you are a branch on the life-giving vine of Jesus, um, if you eat the bread of that idea, that's what makes you a Christian. Whether you're a good person or a bad person, it doesn't matter. There's no partiality. It's all about We pray. Father, thank you for this passage and for what it means for us as a community. Um, As wherever we're at, Christian or not today, your gospel sings. This is a song. This passage ultimately is a a poem. Um, So many layers to it, and yet the most important is how it sets the stage for you. You are the ultimate Lazarus. You are the ultimate Mary. You're the ultimate wrapped up one with burial clothes. You're the ultimate one who will use a part of his body to make us clean. These stories have an echo to them. These stories have a forward-moving impulse to them that we must see. Um, Help us to see it. Help us to celebrate that Um, and to not grow bored with the Scriptures because we see too much of our boring selves in them. Uh, But you are the excitement. You are the one that has the power to actually turn our head heavenward and to just make us lose our breath for a minute because we're so... um, enamored with a God who would actually do this. Um, So I pray for that for myself, uh, for everyone here, everyone who calls this church home, visitors or not, where where people are coming from, Christian or not, God, um, you are a God who bled for people. You are a God without demands, but who comes uh, to fulfill all the scriptures, including all of the laws and prophecies about giving to the poor, to fulfill all of that by being the one who would do it by giving his body on a cross for our sins. Thank you so much for that relief, that good news, and that gospel. In Christ we pray, amen.